Hi, I'm Joel Garcia. Welcome to the Pop Culture Shuffle. On today's show, I have a couple of films to talk about. First up, he is vengeance, he is the knife. We're talking about the Batman. Plus, we're turning red for turning red. I know that wasn't a pun, shut up. We're talking about Disney Pixar's Turning Red. And finally, my brief thoughts on the end of the Major League Baseball strike. But first, let's turn on that bat symbol. Back in 2021, for my season premiere, I talked about my favorite films. One of which happened to be Batman Forever. It's still my favorite Batman movie, but there have been several close contenders. And each have their own pros and cons for why it's not my favorite Batman movie, and why I still have a soft spot for Batman Forever. The reason I bring this up is because it relates a lot to another film I recently watched, The Batman. When it comes to The Batman, the production story is just as fascinating as the film itself. This film was originally intended to be a production with Ben Affleck. He was going to write, produce, direct, and star in the film. Then the Zack Snyder chaos happened, and well, Ben Affleck then dropped his role as director, then as producer, then writer, and eventually just quit being Batman. Well, at least for a while before he eventually get killed off in the Flash movie. That's not a spoiler, we all know that. Now I'm not going to rant anymore about Ben Affleck's take on Batman, but it is unfortunate that during his run as Batman, he technically never got a film to himself. Oh sure, his name is in the title of Batman v Superman, but it's really hard to call that a Batman movie when he has to share it with not just Superman, but also Wonder Woman. The same thing with Justice League and the Snack Snyder recut. He's not the main character, he's just part of a bigger group. And it's unfortunate because you could have had potential with Ben Affleck as Batman, but the problem is that, well, he was just miscast, I have to admit. The problem is that they wanted to have Ben Affleck play an older Batman, but he honestly doesn't look that old. It's hard to believe that Ben Affleck is old, and even when he's trying to play an older Batman, the only thing that indicates to me, oh, he's old, is the graying hair. We'll sadly never know if Ben Affleck could have had a great solo Batman film, because after The Flash, the role of Batman will be taken over by two actors, the returning Michael Keaton and Robert Pattinson. Which leads me to talk about Pattinson. When I first heard that Pattinson was going to be Batman, I was very worried. Now, for a lot of us, I knew Pattinson mainly from his work on Twilight, and the only other thing I knew him from were Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, where he plays Cedric Diggory, and Remember Me. With the former, that's not exactly one of the better Harry Potter films. I really hated Goblet of Fire's film adaptation, because it drastically cut down on the book, while also strangely becoming the longest film in the franchise. And there were a lot of things I hated about Goblet of Fire, especially about how they just cut out an entire subplot. For example, did you know that Dobby was in Goblet of Fire? As for Remember Me, I really liked the story it had, until the ending twist which just felt very insulting. And as for Twilight, well, I'm just gonna say it, I hated it. 
So like a lot of people, when it came to hearing Robert Pattinson's name, I just associated with the word crap. And I honestly just kept thinking every time I saw his name in the film, oh good, this movie sucks already. It was just very questionable whether or not it'd be great. For the longest time, I was worried, oh, we just gonna be the lame vampire kid from Twilight as Batman. Basically, I'm Batman, I'm Moni. And then, eventually, we started to get some behind-the-scenes footage, the early trailers with the suit, and I was a bit more hopeful. In fact, to me, the suit was the biggest thing that stood out. Because unlike, say, the past few Batman films, which have had suits that look, well, very professional, very sleek, or in the case of the Batman Begins, very militarized, we had a suit that looked a bit more homemade. As in, Bruce simply assembled it himself without, say, going to a 3D printer or something like that. I also had this weird question about the bat symbol on the suit. Now, in most cases, the bat symbol is not even there, or if it is, it's a giant target. Or in the case of Batman v Superman, a really fat bat. So I was really curious to find out how this suit worked and if the bat symbol will be used as a weapon. So let's get to the synopsis. In the two years since Bruce became Batman, people have come to fear him or see him as darkness, and in some cases it's just vengeance. Then on Halloween night, a week before the mayoral election, the incumbent mayor is killed by a mysterious figure who leaves riddles, all aimed at Batman. It's up to Batman to find out the mystery behind these riddles and what it all means. Another thing I was really unsure about this film at first was the Riddler, played by Paul Dano. Now depending on who you are, you probably know the Riddler as one of two beings. Either the smart, conniving guy who sends out riddles to Batman, or the crazy eccentric guy who says, Riddle me this, Batman! Now, the way I watched Batman, I discovered both at the same time. I remember watching the Riddler on Batman the anime series, where he was interestingly voiced by John Glover, yes, the same guy who played Lex Luthor's dad on Smallville, as well as Frank Gorshin's take on the 60s Batman TV show. And there is a huge difference between the two of them. For of course, in the anime series, the Riddler is very calm, collected, yet still insane by his riddles, whereas Frank Gorshin does not know the meaning of the word subtlety. The same thing can be said with Jim Carrey's take, who was basically trying to be Frank Gorshin, but as Ace Ventura. The first time I saw Daniel's Riddler, it really did come across as a huge contrast to say any other Riddler. Someone on Twitter best summed it up as, quote unquote, the deacification, quote unquote, of the character. And I'll say this, of course, the difference is that with this particular Riddler is that he's not bombastic. He doesn't have question marks all over his body, and that's perfectly fine. I really did like the portrayal of the Riddler in this film, because, sure, at first you might think, oh, it's just some generic guy who does riddles, but honestly, he's great as the Riddler, because it shows a different side of the character that's more in line with his modern take, just without the goofy bowler hat. It reminded me a lot of, say, Batman Hush, in which it shows the Riddler as a far more serious villain. Oddly enough, that comic book story, this film, and Batman Forever all strangely have one thing in common. The Riddler finding out Batman's secret identity. The reason I'm thinking so much about Batman Forever is not just because of all these comparisons to make with Jim Carrey's Riddler, but also because when I went to see this film at AMC theaters, 
They played this brief commercial of Nicole Kidman talking about the wonders of going to the movie theater. And it's just a weird coincidence to me that this is the movie where this ad plays, and I just thought, oh, Batman Forever. Now, of course, that's where the comparisons to Batman Forever end. The rest of the film, on the other hand, is far more different, and takes a lot of inspiration from multiple Batman stories. Like, one of the bigger inspirations I noticed in this film, especially at the end, was Batman No Man's Land, and I'll just leave it at that to avoid spoilers. So if there's anything else to say about Paul Dano's take on the Riddler, it was chilling, it was moody, and frankly unhinged, as the Riddler should be. With most productions, the Riddler's portrayed to be simply one of the more sane Batman villains, in which, sure, he's crazy, but he's formal about his insanity. With this film on the other hand, there is no formality, he's just crazy. In a way, reminiscent of, say, a serial killer or a stalker. Now some might be put off by the fact that at several moments, Dano's voice can often get a little bit too high-pitched, especially, say, when there's a scene in which the character is yelling out loud, and he's recording this from a phone, so he'll suddenly go from being very calm and relaxed to this. If I have anything negative to say about his portrayal, it would just be how his arrests occurred in the film. Now you might think, oh, it's gonna have, say, Batman beating the crap out of him, when that doesn't happen. And that to me was one of the bigger missed opportunities, especially considering how in Batman Forever, Batman technically never punched the Riddler. Oh sure, he injured him indirectly, but it wasn't like, say, you saw Batman punch Riddler in the face. So as another Riddler once said, it was basically a bummer. Now another person I was really interested in seeing in this film was Zoe Kravitz. Now I first heard of her through a controversy involving The Dark Knight Rises. All I will say about that is that it was wrong, and frankly seeing The Dark Knight Rises, including the miscasting of Tom Hardy as Bane, yeah I can believe it. So it was great seeing her play Catwoman. Like with Dano, she doesn't go over the top with her portrayal of Catwoman. She doesn't say meow or make any cat jokes. In a way, she shares something in common with Anne Hathaway's portrayal of Selena Kyle. They just happen to look like a cat because of their headwear. In the case of Selena Kyle in The Dark Knight Rises, it was because of her glasses. In the case of Selena in The Batman, it's because the hat she's wearing happens to have very subtle cat ears. And frankly, that's perfectly fine as well. I also like the backstory they gave her in this film. I honestly can't recall she ever had any backstory in The Dark Knight Rises. In the case of Batman Returns, what little we do get is mostly just simply how, oh, she has something against her mother and her lover wants to be away from her and that's about it. And as for Catwoman, who cares? So Kravitz's take on the character felt far more fleshed out, especially by some of the reveals later on in the film. Which again, I'm not going to spoil. The only other villain I should comment on is Colin Farrell as the Penguin, but frankly there's not much to say about his role as the Penguin. It's of course just set up for a future role. Farrell really does work well as a villain. You can hardly tell it's him under all that makeup and his accent. Oh, and as for anyone complaining about the Penguin not smoking, 
He also didn't smoke in Batman Returns, which came out in 1992 by the way, and the one time where he was offered a cigar, he spat it out. So with all of that said, let's talk about Pattinson's performance. Pattinson's take on Batman differs a lot from other portrayals. Now with other performers, they often have to balance out the role between Batman and Bruce Wayne. Essentially be dark and menacing as Batman, while also being playboy and fun as Bruce Wayne. But Pattinson on the other hand, that's not the case. As I said, this takes place two years after he becomes Batman. So of course he hasn't developed the wacky persona that Bruce Wayne would normally have. If anything, from the point of view of many people around Gotham, he's a very recluse person who barely shows up out in public. And as Bruce Wayne, Pattinson really does sell it. Because he's not trying to be goofy or anything, he's just dark and moody. I really do like what he does with Batman, in which most of his performance is silent. In fact, the film begins with him narrating about criminals, and the first thing he ever says on screen is, I am vengeance. And once again, that serves a huge contrast to other Batman, where he's not trying to come across as being a giant menacing threat you should be afraid of. No, he just wants you to fear him. So that's all I'll say about Pattinson's take on Batman, because I don't want to spoil that much else, since there's a lot more I could go into, but I really don't want to spoil anything. Andy Serkis' as Alfred, on the other hand, was just... okay. That's mostly down to the fact that he doesn't do much as Alfred. He's just there. Like, even later on in the film, he's barely in it. I will say that his relationship with Bruce is far more contentious, because in other portrayals, we often see them as being united, agreeing one another, Alfred being somewhat reluctant. But here, Alfred is a bit more, well, passive-aggressive, where... He understands why Bruce is doing this, but he's not a fan of it. The only other person I'll comment on is Jeffrey Wright as Jim Gordon. Like in other portrayals, Gordon is portrayed to be the connection for Batman to the police. But not like in the 60s TV show where he was a fully deputized agent of the law. He's still a vigilante, but Gordon is able to get him in while the rest of the police just stands there angrily wanting him to get out. Like one of my favorite scenes in the film, which I'm not going to give that much away, is a scene in which Batman is surrounded by cops, and Gordon is the only person to stop everyone from beating him up. If there's anything else to say about this film, I will say that I love the pacing. Now yes, the film is three hours long, but unlike other films, you don't really notice it. Sure, there are moments in which it seems like we're reaching an end point, but no, it just keeps going, and that's actually a good thing. For once, you don't feel like you're being cheated out of anything. Just when you think a movie's about to end and set up, say, the sequel, no, it keeps going. And unlike other films I've talked about, like, say, a certain 007 film, it actually works in this film's favor, because you want to keep following this character. And there's always a possibility that we might not even get another one. Because, of course, with WB, who knows? I say that mostly because of how this film is not set in the DC Cinematic Universe. So if you're wondering, nope, this is not a reboot, this is just a completely separate universe, and that frankly works for the best. The music is something I really want to comment on because it's half original and half Ave Maria. 
I won't say much about Abba Maria, but all I will say is, whenever it shows up in the film, let's just say you will be surprised. When it comes to the soundtrack, there is something to be said about Batman's theme music in all of his films and TV shows. There's no such thing as a bad one. Whether it be Danny Elfman, Hans Zimmer, Elliot Goldenthal, they've all done great with Batman. And the same can be said happily for Michael Giacchino. His theme song for the Batman plays throughout the film and at no point is it bothersome or annoying. It's very appropriate for this film because it's loud, bombastic, and dramatic. It's a theme I will gladly listen to over and over again, right alongside Danny Elfman's Batman theme, and even the Batman Beyond theme song. So what else is there to say about the Batman? It's basically the film that Zack Snyder wanted to direct. The perfect superhero film. At no point in this film was I sad, depressed, or upset. If anything, I was happy. I was enjoying myself. I loved it. It was the most amazing time I had in a movie theater in such a long time. While Batman Forever is still my favorite superhero film, the Batman is pretty close to it. Like in, say, the top five. Like the last time I was that excited over a Batman film was maybe the Lego Batman movie. But if you want to say live action, I'd have to say The Dark Knight. If you're able to go see the movie in theaters, do it. I highly recommend going to see The Batman in theaters. You will not be disappointed. You will have so much fun watching this amazing film. The Batman is now playing in theaters and will eventually come to HBO Max sometime in April. Last week, I talked about my worries about turning red, mainly by all the negative complaints about the animation, as well as the fact that it was on Disney+. Now, when it comes to Disney+, I just want to point something out. I have nothing against Disney+. I'm a proud subscriber of Disney+, since day one. The service itself is overall great and enjoyable. I love using it. It's just that when it comes to seeing a brand new movie, my preference is to see it on a big screen. And it is unfortunate that when it comes to certain films, like those by Pixar, that they're always stuck on Disney+. Because with some of these films, I would love to see them on a big screen, but that's not being offered. Now, of course, you could try and recreate the experience if you have a big enough screen, but it's frankly not the same. With that said, it's still a very convenient and easy way to check out the film, especially since, if you have Disney+, Plus, you don't need to pay extra to see it. Turning Red takes place in the year 2002, in which we focus on Mei Li, a 13-year-old Chinese-Canadian girl who's living her life with her friends, as well as being respectful to her mother. Then, after a very embarrassing situation, she wakes up to realize she's a red panda. There's more to that, but I'm just gonna leave it at the basic premise. Now, a lot of people, as I stated last week, were upset over the animation with this film, saying, oh, it's bean-mouthed and it's so simplistic and lazy. Having seen the film, no it isn't. If anything, this film has the most energetic animation I've seen in a Pixar film in a long time. 
Something I really like about the animation in this film is how it has expression. And by that I mean, whenever someone has a horrified, worried, or shocked face, it zooms in on them, and you can see them sweating and all of their eyes bulging in fear. Which is something I don't think I've seen in any other film from Pixar. And that's something I really love seeing in this film, just the expressions. Especially from Mei, who, whenever she's horrified by something, her eyes just gouge out and just freaking out. The same with her friends, whenever they see something that amazes them or surprises them, they just go crazy, and it's frankly just fun seeing these expressions. Not only is it a great example of Pixar's animation evolving, but it also differs from their past productions, in which they often go for, say, a certain stylized look for humans, or try to be somewhat realistic. Here, it's very cartoonish, but at the same time, not super cartoonish. They went for the perfect middle ground, where it wasn't uncanny, but also didn't feel like you were watching a really cheap Saturday morning cartoon. And it was just frankly beautiful seeing all these colors in this film, especially the color red. Which makes sense, considering the film is titled, Turning Red. Unless you're in other countries, in which for some reason the film is just titled Red. If it sounds like I'm gushing way too much about the animation, it's because it's very expressive, it's very beautiful, and it's just bright. And that is admittedly something I love seeing in animation. Bright, expressive, and well, full of action. Luca, for example, had very stylistic animation that fit the tone of the film, especially because it was in Italy. Here, it's pretty much Canada. I don't think I've seen a single animated film, or say a major one, set in Canada. This film embraces the fact that it's in Canada. Not only does it reference landmarks and buildings in Toronto, it also has the main character wearing a t-shirt which has the symbol of Canada, the Maple Leaf. And that's something that I'm really glad to see. Since oftentimes when it comes to animated films, if they're not set in a fantasy setting, it's always the United States. And honestly, it's just nice to see a film set anywhere else. Because we had Coco set in Mexico, we've had Encanto set in Colombia, Luca set in Italy, and now Turning Red set in Canada. The other reason, of course, is because the film was directed by Domi Shi. A few years prior, she also directed the Pixar short Bao, which won a Cameo Award. And the two have a lot of things in common, not just the fact they had a director. If you see either the short or film, you'll notice that the one thing the films really love showing off is how the food is cooked and made. Now the other thing both the short and film have in common are about family, and in both cases involving a, well, overbearing mom, all by with different situations. In the short bow, it's about a mother trying to deal with the fact that her son is growing up and wants to go away. Now of course there's more to that, and there are huge differences between the short and the movie. Going back to Turning Red, I love the fact that it states explicitly that it's set in the year 2002. The main character wears a Tamagotchi, her friends give her a CD, and of course, the TVs are not in high definition, it's still the old 4x3 square box. Now the big thing this film focuses on is something that people have already talked about online, is how it focuses on puberty. Now I have seen some people say that, oh, it's not the first time Disney has tackled the topic of puberty, but it also marks the rare occasion where you see someone talk about periods. And sure, I've seen people talk about, oh, but Disney tackled this in the 1940s. 
For those wondering, in 1946, Disney was commissioned to produce a short titled The Story of Menstruation, which was part of a series of shorts that Disney produced to screen in schools. It was also a blatant commercial because the show was distributed by a company that, well, wanted to promote their products. Mainly, menstrual hygiene products from Kotex. Also, and here's the big part, it was only screened in schools, and as far as I can tell, Disney has never released this short on VHS, DVD, or even Disney+. Plus. It's not that easy to find. I really like how honest the film is, and it uses a lot of terms you normally wouldn't expect. Such as May's mom ranting about the boy band, how, oh, they look like delinquents. Or how another character's mom, off-screen, refers to their music as stripper music. When it comes to the fictional boy band, their music sounds really good, and it helps the fact that Billie Eilish wrote the songs, alongside her brother Phineas. Now something I was not expecting to hear in the film was Destiny's Child's Bootylicious. Which is appropriate for the era because, again, this film takes place in 2002 and Bootylicious during that time would have still been relevant. And it was honestly really fun hearing that song in this film since I was honestly not expecting to hear Bootylicious. And I really love that song so honestly I have nothing else to say about it other than it's an awesome song. Something I really loved seeing in this film was how much they focus on the red panda. Especially seeing this film in 4K, you'll notice how far Pixar has progressed when it comes to fur. If you look at, say, the fur animation in Monsters Incorporated and its sequel University, and then look at Turning Red, you can see how far they've gone. In which, oh, animating Sully's fur in that film? It looked pretty good. But then you see Turning Red, and you can see every single fiber of fur. That's how pristine it looks, especially in 4K. If there's anything else I can say without spoiling the film, I just loved seeing the familiar relationships in this film. Because not only do we have the conflict between the mother and daughter, but also seeing, well, the rest of the family arrive. Because I was only aware of a simple tease of, oh, the aunts are coming, but no, it's the aunts and her grandma. And it's just fun seeing all these characters together. It's similar to Coco, in which you have a huge focus on the family. The difference, of course, is that whereas in Coco, they were all fine with each other. Here, in this film, you can clearly tell that, well, May's mom, Ming, voiced by the great Sandra Oh, really doesn't like being near her mom. And in a way, it parallels her relationship with May. That's all I'll say about it. If there's anything else to say, is that the film reminded me a lot of Encanto. And while I admit I didn't like Encanto, though I am open to giving it a second chance, both films have the same thing in common. They're about family. Of course they go in different directions when it comes to how it presents family, but you can tell that's the main point. In Encanto, it was all about the grandma. Here, it's all about, well, the mother and daughter. And not just from the main character, but also her mother and her mother. Also, like the Batman, the third act is epic, crazy, and amazing. Turning Red is a great film, and I highly recommend it. Disney Pixar's Turning Red streams exclusively on Disney+.
Finally, I want to briefly talk about the end of the Major League Baseball strike, and frankly, good. I had a lot of things planned to talk about, and in fact recorded an entire segment ranting about the strike, and thankfully I won't need to use it. Because even then I honestly thought it was terrible, but on the bright side, it's over. Now sure, a lot of things have changed, especially when it comes to say, the designated hitter now being in the National League, two more teams in the playoffs, etc, etc. However, I think we can all agree that frankly, we needed baseball. Because otherwise, We'd be stuck at home watching nothing but NASCAR. Man, let's just say that I know a few relatives who don't like NASCAR. Not me, though. I love NASCAR, but I can understand why nobody else likes it. This strike was frankly a nightmare to deal with. And while it thankfully happened during the offseason, we were dangerously close to losing regular season games permanently. And frankly, after seeing what happened in other leagues, especially the NHL, when they had to cancel an entire season, yeah, it's a good thing they saved the season. So now, for those of you who are fans of either the New York Yankees, the Boston Red Sox, or even the Los Angeles Dodgers, welcome back to baseball. Although we all know, frankly, that the San Diego Padres will win it all. Because I don't want to see the Dodgers win again. Well, except my cousins, who are all ecstatic about that, but all I will say is, go Padres. That is all the time we have for today's show. If you would like to know when the next episode comes out, remember to follow or subscribe to the podcast on your favorite stream provider. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Mr. Joel Garcia 9 Until next time, thank you for listening.